today on Building the Open Metaverse. We are visual creators. Like 80% of traffic nowadays is videos. It speaks for itself, right? We are consuming visuals. I think AI and, and machine learning opens up interesting opportunity for us to pretty much speak the same visual language. Welcome to Building the Open Metaverse, where technology experts discuss how the community is building the open metaverse together. Hosted by Patrick Cozy from Cesium and Mark Petit from Epic Games. Hello, I'm Mark Petit from Epic Games, and my co-host is Patrick Cozy from Cesium. Patrick, how are you today? Hey, Mark, I'm doing well. One of the benefits of us co-hosting these podcasts is that you and I get to learn a lot along with the audience. And I'm really excited for today's episode because anything that's that's tech, that's geek, that's research, that's right up my alley. I'm going to have fun today, Patrick, because we're super happy to welcome to the show Anton Kaplanian. He is the Vice President of Graphics Research at Intel. And Anton is one of the leading researchers focused on real-time rendering. And his research is used all over NVIDIA's middleware and LTS hardware, game engines like Unreal Engine, Unity and CryEngine, and games, and also in Pixar's Renderman. Anton is super great to have you with us on the show. Welcome. Thanks, Mark and Patrick. Thanks a lot for inviting me. I'm happy to be here to chat about my favorite topics. Excellent, Anton. Thank you so much for being here. So as you know, we like to kick off the show and ask our guests about their journey to the metaverse. How did they get started? And let's dive in because there's so much to talk about. I mean, you've been involved in graphics innovation for 20 years across Crytek, KIT, NVIDIA, Facebook, and now Intel. Tell us your journey. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think I wrote my first path tracer in 2002, so quite a <laughs> while ago before all the current path tracing and ray tracing tendency. And then I've been in game development. I'm a game developer at heart, right? So I've been a game developer starting 2004. Had quite some fun there at Crytek. Worked on Crisis, CryEngine. And I, I think you made quite some sales for <laughs> NVIDIA back then with, you know, like kind of John Crisis thing, right? And so on. was uh, fun times. I'm also a PhD in, in light transport, you know, race racing, path racing, modern, what's called physically based rendering by training. So that was, I think, my next journey after game developments. I decided to kind of go a bit back to the drawing board and make sure that I learned this new essentials of physically based rendering and back then it was quite timely, which I think it's maybe not that wide now, but I had a startup as a spin-off of one of my papers, PhD papers, that we have integrated into, into Renderman and so they had a kind of short show how they use it at SIGGRAPH. So they said that the artists started to use this technology basically everywhere. It's like like editing tool inside physically based rendering. And what they did is show called Cars version of it, the Car 3. They basically edited the reflection of the eyes because the eyes of the cars are on the hood, right? And then if you look at the car, you basically see two pairs of eyes and they basically just dimmed down all the reflections of the eyes so that you can see only one pair of eyes and it's all that confusing. <laughs> it's, like, it's kind of interesting things that I've been doing back then, right? When I started working at NVIDIA, something big was brewing, right? That's what's called the RTX hardware now. But it was a lot of fun working on the simulator as well as actually 
things around it, right? Because if you think about the first generation of ray tracing, it's like maybe not super powerful. So you need to augment it with like denoising and, and your other things just to get a, an interesting picture out of it, right? That was a fun technical <laughs> journey as well. I think personally enjoying moving the needle in graphics. So I'm technologist at heart. And when I started working on AR VR, even back at NVIDIA, that was interesting. I think we had like one of the first eye tracking headsets. And there was a, a very simple test, right? You just put a white rectangle where your gaze is at. And it was a, the first kind of eye-opening experience of perceptual graphics for me. Because when you wear this on and you start looking around, you have this interesting perception that this kind of white rectangle that shows where you're looking at is kind of jumping to the place that you want to look at before you even arrive with your eyes there, right? It was a bit of a creepy experience because at first you, you have this uncomfortable feeling that does it read my mind? And then, you know, it's kind of fast enough, right? But then if you dig deeper into that, there's the whole world of perceptual graphics that we just leave like hundreds milliseconds in the past, right? So this is what excited me quite a bit, right? This is where I switched to working on the graphics, you know, ultra-low power graphics, inverse graphics, right? Democratized content creation back at Meta, which was back then Oculus Research. Now I'm thrilled to be back to the, the big industry of big discrete GPUs when Raja said, hey, we're launching a new one, right? It's not that often when you have this opportunity. The last ones launched like, what is it, over 20 years ago, right? And now it's Intel coming to this market as well. So this is certainly super exciting times. We will probably touch on this, but the demand for graphics, the demand for visuals is nowadays growing across the board. Let's talk about innovation and retracing in the last five years, which in explosive innovation in computer graphics, real-time retracing, neural graphics. Let's talk a little bit about that. And let's start with retracing first. The industry has gone through a revolution and now retracing is in almost in every home. Can you walk through any new advancements and where the focus is on next? Where do we go from there? We've gone through even multiple generations of ray tracing hardware by now, right? And even mobile vendors start to bring up some ray tracing hardware and acceleration on the mobile phones, right? So that's an interesting time. I don't think we are fully there yet. There is still a long way to go. There is some adoption needs to be done due to, you know, performance, the availability of the hardware, right? So this is certainly our focus at Intel as well. What I can say is ray tracing is certainly a better, more consistent way of doing graphics. If you especially compare it to like, you know, rasterization or race or algorithm, it could be more costly for like, you know, just camera arrays, right? But then as, as you go further, ray tracing simplified a lot of things. And in a nutshell, ray tracing is just a pointer chasing, right? It's, it's a very divergent workload. What's interesting is that with our latest GPU, right, our cache line size is not that big, right? And it's beneficial for divergent workloads. So we have some very interesting ray tracing hardware there, right, which can achieve interesting, you know, performance per area and so on, right? But it's not just ray tracing. Ray tracing is just gives you like a hit point, right? And from there on, you need to do a lot of other things, right? You need to fetch your material, textures, yada yada, right? Do shading there. Do sampling for the next ray, for example, right? If you're doing a recursion for a full path, right? So there's a lot of divergence, not just in the ray tracing itself, right? But in this whole system around ray tracing, 
And I think this is an interesting architecture challenge for the GPUs because initially GPUs are designed for very coherent kind of almost lockstep workloads. Now with ray tracing, you need to think much more about kind of reconverging this divergent execution across across the whole machine, right? This is where we introduce, for example, the thread scaling unit and DG2, right? And media has their own hardware for that, right? This is, I think, just the first step towards it, right? Towards basically teaching the GPUs to execute more and more divergent and incoherent workloads. And then, of course, another challenge that we see with ray tracing now is I think there is still not enough dynamism. So in terms of like dynamic geometry, in terms of dynamic walls, right, animation and so on, ray tracing comes with the cost of building an acceleration structure around your sync graph, right, to get to the logarithmic complexity when you do the actual ray tracing, right? And then building this acceleration structure is a non-zero cost, and I would say it's a pretty high cost, right? And this is where I think we still have a lot of work to bring more dynamic interactions into ray tracing across the board. As you go further down, ray tracing is just, as I said, it's just an algorithm to get to the next closest hit point, right? But then what do you do with it? I think as we are slowly getting towards real-time path tracing, there are a lot of challenges yet to solve there. And I think if you think about why do we want to go towards real-time path tracing, people could say like, is it a movie and things look much nicer because it's physically based and so on. I think one thing that we need to emphasize here is the look dev consistency part of it. Path tracing has much more predictable results compared to, let's say, some of the modern real-time graphics algorithms. So that's when you create the content, when you create the experience, a scene, an environment, you don't have to think about all of the constraints of the system. You have much more predictable results and you can iterate much faster on your results and therefore we get higher visual fidelity because when the same constant amount of time of production, right? you get to much more pleasing results due to this predictability. I think this is one very important part about future of ray tracing and path tracing that I would want to specifically emphasize. So Antana, a phrase I remember is primary ray is cache, secondary ray is thrash. Is that still relevant in driving a lot of the, the architecture decisions? A lot can be done with smarter algorithms, smarter compression. You can look at May Night, for example, in terms of smart decisions, right? As well as general way of how you execute the whole pipeline at a high level. There's a lot of work that needs to be done there, right? That's why we have thread scaling units and like all, all the specialized hardware to also help with this. Another area of innovation we want to talk to you about is neural graphics, right? Which is, it's a relatively new field intertwining AI and graphics. And we we're wondering if you could share a bit about how it's evolved and some of the innovations you're seeing there. It started playing around with neural graphics back in 2016, back then with denoising, right? Considering like two parallel tracks, one conventional denoising algorithm, and one was kind of more experiment, right? Like how much people push neural networks to do you know, denoising for ray tracing, right? So of course, as any technically interested person, I went through this, what's called five stages of ML grief, <laughs> like probably many others, right? Because first you start with full denial or even the machinery of it, right? Because it's a black box, 
you cannot analyze it, you cannot even gain anything out of it, right? Like you, you would expect, okay, we'll train a big network, right? Um, if it's a simple task, we'll be able to see the structure in this network and we'll be able to distill some interesting algorithm out of it. That doesn't work. So even if you ask a network to overfit, like a gigantic network to overfit a simple task, like, I don't know, addition of numbers or stuff like, or stuff like that, right? You will have like your entropy being spread all over the matrix. So no PCA, no other analysis would give you a good meaningful structure of what is the algorithm, right? <laughs> so this is how, how black box it is. And then, you know, you go through like, oh, it's just numerics. And then like, oh, it's so data dependent and, and so on and so forth, right? So once or, or if, right, if, if you get to, towards acceptance, you can basically say like, okay, fine, right? We cannot analyze this billions of dimensions and billion dimensional functions yet, but so be it. That's the best known numerical tool we have now for solving high level and very complex and high dimensional problems that we haven't even had any other tool before. In terms of application to graphics, I think it's still like very early days. There is a tremendous potential in neural graphics because at the end of the day, we are visual creatures and like 80% of traffic nowadays is videos. And it's been like that before, in, even before COVID, right? It speaks for itself, right? We are consuming visuals, images or thousands of words and so on, right? So this is where I think AI and machine learning opens up an interesting opportunity for us to pretty much speak the same visual language. Or not the same, but like very similar visual language, right? Because you can actually task the machine learning algorithms like neural networks with uh, much higher level tasks. Like for example, if you want to task them with some human perception tasks, this is how our visual perceptual system works. This, these are, you know, the frequencies and contrasts that we care about, right? And, and temporal contrast sensitivity, sensitivity function and so on. This is just go and fit your imagery, right? Into this constraint of, of human perception. This is something that was before very hard to explain to classical graphics algorithms, right? Because how can you explain to, I don't know, ray tracing or shading, right? That it needs to care about like this particular spatial and temporal effects, right? And this particular details, right? When you work with machine learning, this kind of high level task definition, right? Becomes possible. And this is one very, very important part of neural graphics that it gets closer to human, it gets closer to human understanding. And that of course comes in addition to things like hardware efficiency, because machine learning hardware can be streamlined very well, right? So you know exactly when you can prefetch what, you can resort to very low precision arithmetics, for example, like int8 that we use on XCSS, for example, and so on, right? So there is a lot of benefits, even at the low level. Things like, for example, predictable performance. I can set the network size in advance, and I can say, okay, I'm rendering on this low-end machine, right? or I'm rendering on a like very high-end machine, and I need to render it, let's say, 60 frames a second. Well, this is the size of the network I can afford, and it's going to be guaranteed to be executed at 60 frames a second on this particular machine. And now I fix this network in advance, and I pass it on to the training part, right, where the optimizer tries to squeeze the best quality out of this fixed performance. 
So this is a completely different way of thinking about performance, right? Compared to, let's say, conventional rendering pipelines, where you're trying to reduce your polygon count, your textures and whatnot to get to the frame rate. Here you kind of could set frame rate in advance if you know the platform, right? If you know your compute budget, your bandwidth budget, and so on. So those kind of directions, right? Those kind of opportunities, very interesting future directions, right? Future potentials for linear graphics that we can exploit. And of course, it's still early days, right? The hardware is not fully widespread yet. I'm, I'm looking at, at consoles, right? And performance is still not there for everything, right? And it's a bit of a chicken egg, right? Because you need to invest more in the hardware to get more performance and so on, right? But we are getting there in like pretty large steps, I'd say. How did you get the idea? Who would think that machine learning could be used to guess pixels and would be faster than computing them? What was the original impetus of going down this path? Uh, originally, as I said, I was not a strong believer either. So that's why for me, the, the first project was like a dual track project, right? So, okay, we're going to hedge our bets and we're going to do the classical one, right? And do just the ML one just to have some apples to apples comparisons, right? ISO performance, ISO compute power, how the quality would look like. To all surprise, the quality looked comparable. It's different in terms of artifacts and so on. For example, for Denoiser, I think that the hardest picture is not like crazily complicated lighting. It's a kernel box. It's a kernel box because you can see like all the imperfections, right? And, and you know the straight lines and so on. This was the hardest picture to get for the network to learn, right? It's, it's a completely different machinery. But at the end of the day, in terms of performance and quality, it was the same ballpark, right? And this fascinated me as well as the ability to set the problem for the network at a much higher level, right? You can basically do like some high dimensional to high dimensional mappings, right? You can set the loss functions, which are quality error functions for the image that you wouldn't be able to explain them or map them to the classical algorithms, right? So it opens up a whole new different field. Interesting. Let's talk about another piece of wizardry from my perspective. We got a lot of questions about nerfs because it looks like this magical way of doing 3D neural radiance fields. So since we have you here, can you give us a little bit of a primer on nerf and how does it compare with photogrammetry, which I think is a process that's well understood. So why is this technology so interesting? First of all, nerf is not just photogrammetry. I think nerf, it started with the light fields. Basically, just let's bake a five-dimensional light field, which, again, like was something that was barely possible, if at all, before. But it also lowers the bar for, for scanning, because it's machine learning, right? And you don't have to have like precisely calibrated cameras and, and, and rig and set up, right? And so on. This is another thing, right? Now you have like a bunch of startups that capture something from your phone using Nerf. But I think internally, what's really powerful about it, it's a combination of two pretty young technologies. First and foremost, the original paper showed that we can train <laughs> an MLP, right? A multi-level perceptron to a very high frequency signal, which I think was not possible before. Then once you have this tool, you can represent very rich, you know, like, for example, a full image, right? Or a full, even five-dimensional light field, right? Because the person dimensionality does not apply that much to networks, right? With this small network, which is just a few tens of megabytes of data at the end of the day, right? I think that's the breakthrough, right, of this, the whole NERF technology, right? 
that we can have small compact function approximator for very high dimensional signals, right? For very complicated signals that we wanna approximate. And and if you think about it, right, it's just like, yes, they showed it on the light field and you could use it for, the, for photogrammetry, but as a mathematical tool, it has way, way more implications in across the board, right? Even in, in graphics pipeline than just a light field capturing, right? And then the second technology that they also smartly applied, it's another, you know, young technology, it's a differentiable rendering. Ravi is on the paper for a reason there. And the idea of differentiable rendering is that you can do your rendering process as you would do rendering, but then you also do what's mathematically called a backpropagation through it, right? So you basically differentiate it back and get the gradients in a sense of if I change, let's say, this geometry, right? Or if I change this texture, how it's going to affect the image. So these gradients, they allow you to optimize the whole pipeline, right? To land the optimal solution in a sense of what your camera sees. I think both of these technologies are very powerful in their own ways. The MLP part is just a function approximation, right? Just there's a representation that can be powerfully applied to a lot of things, right? It's not just light fields, it's not just density fields. It could be a lot of things. It could be like an inverse video, for example. And then the differentiable rendering itself, right? It also allows us to have a much, much stronger prior, much, much stronger and prescriptive understanding of what the camera actually sees. And this is something that opens up a lot of doors in content capturing, right? And optimizations for, for scanning, for example, right? And even just for geometry simplification and quite a few other directions, right? So I think this is what makes this the technology itself fascinating, right? It's internally, it's a combination of two very powerful constructs that, yes, first demonstrated on light fields, right? But then now you can see like mushrooms after the rain, right? A lot of technologies are applying this neural representations here and there. A lot of technologies are applying just differentiable rendering as well, right? Like there are papers that say like, oh, you don't need an MLP, right? You can just do like proper differentiable rendering and like maybe some nonlinear functions and so on. At the end of the day, under the hood, these technologies, they have a lot of promise for the future, both in content creation, as well as in the actual neural graphics, right? So across the whole pipeline from sensing to pixels, right? You can easily add dimensions. You can easily add different semantics. It's a richer representation. It's a richer understanding beyond just geometry and textures, for example. You can add time as a dimension there, right? You could add some other representations and semantics. Like, for example, I want to do physics. In addition to my graphics and the visuals, I want to do some rigid body uh, simulation, right? And keep it in the same representation. And then, of course, as you go higher and higher up the stack, right, it could also incorporate things like, let's say, the scene graph, or not just low-level graphics representation of the scene, but also the higher level, you know, like functional and even maybe behavioral representation of the scene, right? That the door opens, right? That the traffic light actually changes lights and stuff like that. This is all possible to do like within a single unified representation. This is where I think most of the power is coming from, right? You don't have to have like all this kind of specialized algorithms if you know a higher level problem at hand. Of course, in addition to that, as, as first steps, right? We also see a lot of advances in just democratization of the content creation. Just because of the initial nerve war, it becomes hopefully way easier to capture 
content. And of course, there is still a long way to get it to good quality, to practicality, and, and through the existing pipeline and ecosystem that we have, right? Uh, but I believe it's getting there. I feel so outdated. I thought I knew a thing or two about graphics. <laughs> I realized that. <laughs> I, I feel no. completely obsolete now. This is, no, this it's is a big paradigm shift. Yeah. yeah. So, Anton, look, thanks thanks for the tutorials here. We're talking about intertwining AI and graphics with neural graphics and nerves. But I wanted to take a step back and just get your perspective on AI in general. I mean, during our prep call for this episode, you made some really interesting observations on where AI could take us. AI allows us to get to the higher level reasoning, get to the higher level programming. Right now, it's like talking to a grown child. You start with a very simple concept when you have a baby, right? Start with like very low level tasks. Just go here, do that, and so on. And this is, to me at least, the classical, for example, algorithmic computer science looks like, right? And now your child grows. And you start giving it, giving your child like, you know, higher and higher level tasks. Do some chores at your home, right? Or like go do some groceries, right? This is where you start tasking your child with much higher level problems and assume that they'll know all the steps uh, behind it, right? And it's kind of the same for me, like the same feeling as with AI, right? With machine learning that you can actually treat it as a child that is growing up. You can set some problems that were just unapproachable or untractable before because we didn't even know how to solve them. There were no algorithms. They were either, you know, too high dimensional or no, nothing existed there, right? Now you can just say, do your best there, right? And uh, given you have a good data pipeline, right? And a, a good objective for this algorithm, right? It, it will try to do the best, right? And of course, one important thing that I think why we have this deep learning revolution in the first place is, of course, the, the Moore's law. So the amount of computer having now made it more tractable to actually train these networks because, you know, at my university or like college times, right, we could train, I don't know, like a small three-layer MLP in like, I don't know, overnight or something like that. Now, thanks to hardware acceleration, thanks to GPUs, we can do it reasonably well, or we could grow the, the network capacity, right? Data set capacity and so on, right? So at the end of the day, we are getting to this higher and higher level reasoning, right? And higher and higher level programming, if you will, right? which basically at the end of the day enables us a better human-computer interface. That's fantastic. More accessibility, more it's going to become pervasive, but every medal has two faces. So what are the challenges that we can expect from those technologies? There's two schools even in, in graphics and computer vision, right? Basically, the machine learning methods in general, they are highly data-driven methods, which means that if garbage in, garbage out, right? So if your data set is not faithful and reliable enough, then you're gonna not have any meaningful method out of it, right? And that's, that's why it's also very frustrating for some people who just start with machine learning, right? Because they try to throw a task at it, but then, you know, with just small biases, right, in your data set, it doesn't perform well. And I think this data, right, like the data preparation, right? And, and it's like, what do you teach you you grow in child, right? Basically, <laughs> it's, it's about that, right? So how do you prepare your data, right? Like for example, for synthesizing humans, right? That's, that's a very, very sensitive topic. And there are like a lot of problems. Like how do you get to a balanced data set? 
And this is also the problem, you know, we had to solve for XCSS as well, right? Like how, how do you get to balanced, reliable and, and reasonably generalizable data sets, right? Where as many corner cases are well and equally represented as possible, right? And then the network has good guardrails on what are the problems that it has at hand. Of course, speaking of guardrails, right? This is where I think people often think about machine learning as just crowdsourced huge captured data sets, right? It captures a lot of data and then just feed it into the network. It will do its clustering, its magic, right? <laughs> Inside, right? But I think with graphics, we have very interesting opportunity to actually provide these guardrails to the networks, right? Because if you think about it, everything becomes smarter nowadays, right? Like your dishwasher most likely has like a small neural network in it already, right? And then who's going to train all these neural networks, right? Like who's going to train the neural networks that are riding on, on our road, right? Self-driving cars, right? And any embodied AIs, right? Like your vacuum cleaner, your... I know, robots in a, in a warehouse, right, or on, on an assembly line, right? Basically, any AI that we want to act intelligently, we need to teach it, right? We need to give it good guardrails about how the world looks like, right? How the world behaves and so on. And this is, I think, a tremendous opportunity, a tremendous opportunity for graphics. It's uh, the metaverse for AI, right, if you will, which goes in the direction of digital twins, right, synthetic data generation or AI, right, or any kind of robotics, right, any kind of simulation that relies on, on visual cues, right? So I think this is where it's an early and very important field for us to cover as, as graphics people, right? So it's not just machine learning and graphics, right? It's also graphics and machine learning that becomes like, very, very important nowadays, right? In the context of the future immersive experience, right? There is also a premise that anyone would be able to create content. Anyone would be able to populate some reasonably meaningful environments, for example, right? Nowadays, people populate news feeds in your social network, people populate marketplaces, and your metaverse name goes here, right? Basically, we should make sure that we enable people to meaningfully create these very immersive experiences, environments, and worlds, right? And this is where I think there is still a lot of challenge at the higher level, right? As a higher level understanding of humans, right? This is where ChatGPT, for example, right? Like the diffusion models and so on, they're scratching the surface there. But at the end of the day, we want to have a level of understanding that like a five-year-old could create their own environment, for example, right? Anyone could just, you know, post something which is immersive, right? Something that they meant to create the way they meant to create, right? And this level of understanding and this high level of understanding, I think, is, is still a very challenging task that we need to work with machine learning methods, right, with AI and, and data sets to get to. It's an interesting whirlwind or, or flying wheel that we have going on because these AI techniques really is going to help commoditize 3D content creation. You know, five-year-olds, as you said, can do environments. And then we can create so much content that we can teach those machines even more the synthetic data to train even more models. So that's going to be a true explosion of the amount of content and the intelligence or the understanding of machines of that content. And Mark, on that note, I mean, if you think about 3D content becoming as democratized as maybe text content today, that's going to put a lot of demands on visual computing. 
So Anton, do you have any thoughts on visual computing architectures in terms of CPU versus GPU and edge versus cloud and how this may play out? If you look at the very high level picture, people's lifestyle is getting to be about like more free, like more lean, and just things should be more convenient. So the gadgets become smaller, right? The lifestyle becomes more mobile, right? Especially after COVID. People start using Starlink and so on, right? If you think about this part, people would like to have this freedom of taking something with you and you only when you need it, right? That's kind of, you know, one, I'd say, high-level direction. But on the other hand, the expectations around the visual quality, right? The intelligence of your gadgets is growing pretty fast, right? And then at some point, you will probably get into a situation where your thin client would rather focus on just content delivery both ways, while leaving the heavy lifting of quality, right, and intelligence to some compute somewhere else. And it doesn't have to be cloud or even edge, right? It could be nearby. But this kind of decoupling, if you will, displays and the experience around the displays, right, is, is something that's unavoidably getting into. And I think we are, to a degree, we are already seeing it with things like diffusion models, right, ChatGPT. They're designed to have high-level conversations with humans, yet pretty much most of the compute is somewhere in the back end. It's something that you necessarily immediately have in your pocket. Hope not. So I think I gl I'm glad that as Intel, we are gearing up for this wide gamut of different products from lower power integrated GPUs and your laptop, which by the way, have ray tracing in them. So it's <laughs> they're lower power, but not that low power. Right? Yet they're still powerful, right? And the high to all the way to high-end data center GPUs like Quantavecchio or, or the Max Data Center GPU that has a tremendous compute power, right? Both for AI and also the, for the ray trace acceleration. Speaking of which, by the way, we even managed to run the Disney's film production scene, uh, the Moana scene, on the Data Center GPU at pretty interactive frame rate, right? So you can run film scenes on these big machines now if you need to, right? So if you need to deliver film quality to your lean client, right? To your gadgets, to your AR, VR glasses, whatever it is, right? This could be one way to do it, right? You were uh, at Crytek in the early days of the CryEngine, so I'm curious to hear your opinion on the, the evolution of the game engines market. We've seen some consolidations going on. So any thought about the future industry? And a bonus question, because Open3D Engine is actually the Crytek engine that you worked on. Can that be a successful open source project? That's the bonus question. We'll, we'll come to it after. Ecosystems like Game Engine, they're still heavily driven in general, right, by the brilliant, talented team that stands behind them, right? This is like a very focused team that is driving this system into particular directions, right? If you think about Unreal Engine, Unity, right, there are many different important directions that those engines are going to. The Open3D Engine, I think it's going to be interesting to see because it's, it's crowdsourced, right? And actually, the same goes for DreamWorks Moonray render. Also open source, so the development of the systems will likely be 
crowdsourced by many smaller developers, right? And we'll see where they're going to move the needle in this engines. And then, of course, coming back to the commoditization, right? I think things like, you know, the low-level graphics APIs, right? As well as this long tail of platforms that we have now and more and more complicated content creation pipeline. This is what made in-house engines much more expensive, which led to the consolidation of game engines that we see now. You know, the gamut of, of these platforms become wider and wider, right? This is where thinking about the separation of graphics from displays might be an interesting way to see how you can deliver the consistency of visual experience across all this crazy number of different platforms, right? Because if you game on very low-end Android mobile phone, right, versus very high-end PC, right, these could be tremendous gamuts that you need to cover, right? And then how do you develop your experiences for this, right? This is, I think, where it will be interesting to see this separation. I think we see some of that to a degree with Lumen, Nainai, right? And so on, where there's a lot going on behind the scenes, right? Maybe even as a pre-process before these experiences, right? To deliver the best experiences for a particular platform or a particular display at the end of the day. So I think I think that's that's an interesting direction. But at the higher level, I think game engines will probably, or I guess most likely, grow into much bigger platforms, much bigger ecosystems. Because even now, big game engines already have a lot of different subcomponents, right? Like here's how we create humans, here's how we create environments, this, that, that, and so on, right? At the end of the day, you can just populate them, right? Like starting with marketplaces, right? Starting with massive multiplayer games and so on, right? You can you can populate it into a bigger ecosystem and with good feedback loop, right? It can become even more and more powerful and intelligent in this sense, right? So it's not going to be just a game engine, right? It's going to be a full, full platform with uh, intelligent content in it. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting we saw NVIDIA come up over the past few years with a completely new simulation engine, you know, data center scale and based on the USD sync graph. So we, you think we could see more real-time computing platform emerge? Yeah, and uh, in fact, we do have our own platforms, right? We have Carla Simulator for self-driving cars. That's been around for quite a while, right? And we have our rendering stack, right? Like rendering Fulcate with Ambry and Open Image Noise and Osprey is a full full face render, right? That, that can again deliver like a compute visual simulation platform, right? So I think in this regard, it's coming back to training AI, right? Coming back to training all of our intelligent machines that are going to be out there. I think that's suddenly an, a good and important demand, right? Like for example, there is already a city, I think somewhere in India, where they don't give you driver license, driver's license unless you pass a driver's test in the digital twin of their city. This is how close it gets, right? In terms of what we call metaverse, what they call, call immersive experiences, right? I think in terms of simulation, like game engines and simulation platforms, it's certainly going to be an important market, right? Oh, I don't want to predict if it's going to be like the major markets, right? Like the main market, or it's going to be like one of the markets. But at the end of the day, someone needs to train our, our AI, right? To be more intelligent, to be more visually intelligent. What would it take to make the web browser a viable platform for graphics? Are you confident that WebAssembly, WebGPU are 
what will deliver very capable capabilities in, in web browsers? The ecosystem, right? Web browser could be a thin layer, right? At the end of the day, what you need to do is you need to have like a lot inside this web browser, right? And whether a web browser will be the right platform for it, it could be. It could be because if you get to the you know the right level of efficiency with other abstraction, right, your APIs, right, and so on, then it could deliver the promise of having some cross-platform abstraction for compute. But then, of course, it doesn't remove the problem of consistency of experiences across different platforms because you can run on a web browser on a small phone versus like, you know, large high-end PC, right? And this is where you would need to still scale appropriately inside this web browser, right? Or you could, you would need to decouple it, right? And use a web browser just as a content delivery vehicle, right? Which is what is another possible direction. It could be an interesting platform, right? An interesting platform to start with because even on mobile phones, right? A lot of apps are nowadays just web apps at the end of the day, right? And there is a reason for that, right? Because it, it, it simplifies the development, simplifies the delivery and consistency and so on, right? So Anton, it's been just a ton of fun geeking out with you here. We covered everything from GPU ray tracing to neural graphics to nurse uh, to game engine ecosystem. One of my favorite episodes when we look at the topics here. To wrap it up, would love for you if you want to give a shout out to any person or organization. Thanks a lot for inviting me here, Eric, Mark. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Very good question. Very, very good questions. A lot of fun. <laughs> a lot of fun during the conversation, right? Of course, I'd like to thank Intel for giving me this opportunity, right? And uh, I personally would like to thank Raja, Raja Kaduri, for bringing me over, right? So for this interesting journey of launching a new GPU, right? It's not that often when you can participate in, in this event, right? And of course, Thanks to my wife and family right? and all the people who supported me on my graphics journey. Thank you, Anton. What an impressive journey. Good luck with launching new GPUs. Getting Intel into the world of GPUs is, is a big endeavor, so things seems to be going well. So we wish you even more luck and more success in the future. Anton, it was deep. I'm going to have to re-listen to this podcast myself to make sure I, I got all of that. But it was fantastic deep dive into all those topics. They are complex. But they are very important because they are, as Patrick said, a paradigm shift in our in our industries. So thank you very much for enlightening us today. Looking forward to, to listening into it as well. And thank you, Patrick. And thank you to everybody who is listening to us. Please, uh, as usual, hit us on social. Let us know what you think and what you want to hear about. Thank you very much, everybody. Till the next episode.